Amen. Please be seated. And will you turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. You'll find it on page 553 of your pew Bibles, I believe. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll be picking up today where we left off last week at verse 12. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 to 18. Solomon writes by the Holy Spirit moving him. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have enlightened our lives and our thoughts and our minds and our worldview by the entrance of your word. We pray that you would strengthen and deepen that understanding of this world in which we live and our human predicament, our natural human predicament, from this passage before us today. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, sent in due time to redeem us. Grant these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to think with me for just a moment. Just sit back and reflect Consider this question, have you ever wished that you could go back in time to one particular moment and either undo or unspeak something that you said or did in that moment? Something that you said or did that had tremendous, maybe even lifelong repercussions. Repercussions that you've regretted ever since that moment. Maybe it was something that ended a friendship 
or some other relationship precious to you, something you said or did that disrupted somebody's trust in you, or their peace of mind, maybe even their lives. Back when I was teaching my teenage children how to drive many, many years ago, I used to harp continually on this very theme. And I hope you do too with your children when their time comes to take the wheel of the family car. Impress upon them the fact that one single solitary microsecond of inattention to what you're doing is all it takes drastically to change your life or the life of somebody else forever. And cry as hard as you will afterwards. There's no going back to that one moment to undo it. The damage is already done. Creatures of time, like ourselves, have to reckon every day with the hard, non-negotiable fact that for us, time moves only in one direction. Even the artificial backward movement from daylight savings time to standard time in the fall of the year, it's only one hour we fall back. And of course, that mere change in the clocks never undid anything foolish that we said or did in that hour. There is no redo, there is no second chance to get things right the first time. Sinners moving only forward through time and history tend to leave tons and tons of wreckage behind us. The wreckage of inborn sin combined with that of the many bad decisions that we make along life's way, which gives us plenty of grist for the mill of repentance, plenty of grist for the mill of personal humility. This canvas on which Solomon began painting our extended picture of natural life, an earthbound life lived without reference to the living God, but merely under the sun, the canvas itself is pretty bleak, isn't it? We consider the last time we were together, we live our natural lives in this rather sorry world of dreary, unending, cyclical, Sameness. Generation after generation, century after century, the sun rises and it sets, rises and it sets, rises and it sets. The wind blows where it will without any particular purpose in mind. All the rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. And the ultimate purpose for all of these relentless cycles in life The ultimate purpose can't be found in this world. Can't be determined from the data that's given here below. So life under the sun becomes for the average sinner a matter of just drawing the next breath, 
taking the next step, popping the next pill, earning the next dollar, and it all ends in the grave. And then our children come along and they get to do the same thing. And then their children after them. Our passage today paints all human activity against the background of this dreary, gray reality under the sun. Solomon writes, I, Koheleth, that is, the preacher, or even the convener, I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, he pointed this out already in the opening line of the book, didn't he? But here in verse 12, we learn not only that he is king, as son of David, not only that he is king, but that he's been king. He's been king for a while. So what this means is that Solomon, when he writes this, isn't some callow youth privileged to wear the Davidic crown for the very first time in his life. Solomon's not some teenager discovering the world for the very first time. He's been at this for a while. In fact, as we learn later on in this book, Solomon is an old man by now. He's been around the block a few times. And not only did Solomon set his earliest personal priorities as king around the gaining of wisdom, you may remember he, he did so with all the resources of the throne at his disposal. So as king, he's been able to afford doing the research necessary to come to these conclusions that he comes to. Solomon never had to cut corners to fit a research budget. Within the providential constraints placed upon the average man in the street, or rather without those, you and I have these constraints uh, when it comes to the acquiring of knowledge and wisdom. Solomon didn't have those, and without them, he was able to observe carefully, penetrate deeply, explore widely, learned easily, analyzed minutely, and retained comprehensively. Which means that by this late point in his life, King Solomon has virtually become a walking, talking encyclopedia of knowledge on every subject, he says, right down to the hyssop growing on the wall. He's become the recognized authority of his age. That's Solomon at this point in his life. And we read in verse 13, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He's explored it all. He's set his mind to work on it. And what's his conclusion? What's his conclusions? Is it one grand mathematical formula to explain the universe and all of its movements? No. All of his studies just led him to this. It is an unhappy business which God has given to the sons of man to be afflicted with. 
It's an unhappy business. Pretty underwhelming, isn't it? As the bottom line of all of his studies, pretty underwhelming. Well, that's not his final word, and it's not the full story of his inquiry, of course. He gets to that very late in the book, in chapter 12. But what he says here is true as far as it goes, isn't it? The deeper you look into a subject that piques your interest, that excites you, the clearer its downside often becomes. The less pleasing it looks. The longer you look, the less pleasing the subject looks. Western culture is going through that right now, isn't it? As we learn some of the limitations and drawbacks to this so-called green energy. It's pretty intriguing to think of windmills generating our power. It's pretty exciting. Until you discover a polar vortex coming along that simply shuts them all down with ice at the worst possible moment. And electric cars. What a great idea they are until you discover all the fossil fuel that's needed to generate the electricity needed to power them. The deeper you probe into things here under the sun, the more problems you tend to find. The more it all seems like striving after wind. And it's very much the same on points much closer to home. It's one of the reasons that not long after the honeymoon, marriage typically doesn't feel quite like the engagement did. Because now that you're married, you've had the opportunity to look a little deeper into one another's life and character. And you've discovered more of what was already there. You discover that the man or woman of your dreams isn't only gorgeous, isn't only charming, isn't only fun to be with, he's also a sinner. She's a sinner. They've got some bad habits. They've got a few annoying little quirks, and if you're wise, it begins to sink in that your life's work as a husband or wife isn't to change the other, but to complete the other to make up the genuine deficits in the life and character of this person that you now live with. Not everyone finds that easy to do. Solomon, let this sink in. Solomon had a thousand women in his life. Think about that. 700 wives, 300 concubines, most of them hardened pagans and political pawns. Few, if any of them, possessed of the gentle and quiet spirit that's so precious in the sight of God and so precious in the sight of a believing husband. Solomon knew clearly and felt keenly the things whereof he wrote in verse 18. In much wisdom, there's much grief. 
and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. It's true inside the home and it's true outside the home. But today I want to focus your attention specially on verse 15. Here we have another candid observation of a wise and careful man. The observation, in fact, of a craftsman who demands always the right materials to work with. Don't bring me inferior stuff to do my work. Only the best will do, and only the full measure of it. I want you to remember as you think through verse 15 that this is the man who oversaw the building of God's temple in Jerusalem. The man who made sure that every stone, every timber of the temple was cut to specification off-site so as to fit precisely together when they were assembled on Mount Zion. All this pre-planning so that the noise of hammer and saw wouldn't be heard in the house of God to disturb the peace and tranquility of the place. Solomon was, in that respect, a tremendous craftsman. Back in those early days of his reign, he'd been a man of precision. He had been a man of the highest standards, particularly touching the matter of God's worship. Because to know this living and true God, actually to meet with him in worship, this is the highest, the greatest work a man or woman can undertake here under the sun. And so at this point I should ask you, what about you? Is this, what you are doing right here, right now, this very moment, is this the high point of your week? Is the worship of the living and true God the focal point? Is it the highest aspiration of your life? God's spoken very clearly on the matter, and what he says leads one to believe that meeting with him requires some very special thought and care. It requires your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It requires personal consecration to the task because this one day of rest and fellowship with God puts all the other six days into perspective. Using this day well answers a lot of those problems that Solomon poses in this book. Meeting with God explains everything in due time. But Solomon discovered a terrible thing about the human condition. Not only do men by nature lack a true sense of purpose in life, as we've seen, we also lack power. We lack purpose and we lack power power to build something beautiful for God during these few short years that he's given us here to live under the sun. Power to effect change in our own situations, let alone building a temple. 
power to break out of these desperate, frantic circles of a life lived. Merely under the sun, we lack Drive a crow. And if nails have a distinct purpose, humanity has a purpose too, which is to, you can say it with me, glorify and enjoy God forever. The problem is we're crooked. We don't meet the craftsman's specifications. We can't do what we were first designed to do. But that's not the half of the story. The rest of the story is told for us here, at least part of the rest of the story. Because worse even than the fact that we are by nature crooked, here we learn that what is crooked cannot be straightened. cannot. We sinners lack the pristine righteousness required to meet with the infinitely holy God. And we can't fix this problem ourselves. We can't. The truth is we can't even fully determine the scope of the problem. Because what is lacking in us is beyond our power even to comprehend. It cannot be counted. It cannot be measured. We cannot understand the infinite distance between the righteousness of God and our sorry condition. That is the great unbridgeable gulf standing today between this fallen earth and the glories of heaven. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon here does humanity the kindness of showing us the world not as we'd like it to be, but as it really is. He's holding up a mirror and showing us ourselves, not as we like to think of ourselves, but as we actually are. We like to think we can fix things ourselves. We like to think we're in charge of any situation we happen to be presented with. Some of you, I suppose, are familiar with William Ernest Henley's 19th century poem, Invictus. Invictus is a literary shaking of the author's fist in the face of God. And it ends in these lines. Henley writes, it matters not how straight the gate, 
how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the way Henley saw things. Well, the unconverted captain, Henley, went down with his ship on July 11th, 1903, when at the age of only 53, he died and met God face to face for the first time. The living and true God, the sovereign God, who is to every unrepentant sinner a consuming fire. The plain fact is that we're not in total control of our own life circumstances, are we? We're not the masters of our fate. We're not the captains of our soul. Even at the very beginning, as mere creatures, our first parents, Adam and Eve, had their creaturely limits. They had their very reasonable boundaries. Adam tried to exceed those boundaries, which rendered all of his children not upright as he once was, but now crooked, as he in that instant of his disobedience became himself. We became sinners in the hands of an angry God, an offended God. And today we're told that what is crooked cannot be straightened, which leaves us without hope if our only hope lay in this dreary world where every road you take only takes you in circles. If our hope lay in this world only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Thanks be to God then for his boundless compassion that was shown in the fullness of time to absolutely hopeless sinners like us who meet regularly for worship in places like this. Let me explain. There came a day in history when the Son of God left his heavenly throne of righteousness. And remaining the undiminished God he ever is became also man. No longer God afar off, but God with us. God incarnate in the womb of Mary, a Jewish girl of Nazareth. And on that day, that unbridgeable gulf of which I just spoke, it was bridged. It was bridged. But not from our end. We did nothing. There was nothing we could do. What is crooked cannot be straightened. Even if we fully understood the extent of the trouble we were in, there wasn't anything we could do about it. But we didn't even understand it. We couldn't. And too many people today still don't know the extent of the trouble they're in. The danger they're in. 
Too many people today live in this fantasy world of self-improvement. They live in William Henley's world, thinking themselves in charge of things. But for those who pay attention to the written Word of God, it's been clear for ages that here in this lost world under the sun, what is crooked cannot be straightened. Well, that baby conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary was, of course, Jesus, who was so named because it is he who will save his people from our sins. That baby grew up to manhood, and you already know the rest of the story. But I want to call your attention to one little episode from that story, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Here in the 13th chapter of Luke, which we read earlier, that passage from the 13th chapter of Luke, we discover a little incident that sheds some very encouraging light on today's rather gloomy text from Ecclesiastes. Seems that Jesus, making his way southward from Caesarea Philippi down through Perea toward Jerusalem and the cross, Jesus along the way was teaching in one of the synagogues, in one of the villages along the route. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Now I want you to understand that this crooked little woman had come that day to worship God. That's all. That was presumably her habit to go to the house of God, the synagogue, and worship God. On the Sabbath day, that's what a godly woman would do, assemble with all the rest of God's people locally and worship. She wasn't there that day to ask any favors of anyone. She certainly wasn't there to be healed because 18 years is a very long time. And over the course of time, over the course of 18 years, you just get used to playing the hand you're dealt, don't you? If it's a disability, you just learn to adapt. We don't know how old this woman was. It's very possible if she was a young woman that she'd been bent over double her whole life. She didn't come to worship that day in order to be healed. In the synagogue, certainly everyone who'd been paying attention to the readings knew that what is crooked cannot be straightened. And here we have someone who is literally a very crooked woman. She is bent over double. But listen, listen to this. When Jesus saw her there in the synagogue, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you're free. 
Woman, you're freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Ours is a very sorry, sorry world, isn't it? It's a world beset by disappointment, by losses, by disabilities, by heartache. And what Solomon wrote is absolutely true as far as his broad experience went. It is an unhappy business which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Here in a typical life lived under the sun, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is leprous cannot be cleansed. The deaf do not hear. The blind do not see. The dead do not live again. Not here under the sun. And then in the fullness of time and according to promise, the sun of righteousness arose with healing in his wings. God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He redeems us who were once enslaved to our sins. He redeems us. He sets captives freed. Dear ones, as this poor world keeps unraveling day after dreary day, year after dreary year, let's bear these foundational things in mind, that we have absolutely no power to straighten ourselves out. That if we're going to entertain any reasonable hope, either in this world or in that which is to come, it lies not in fallen crooked men, it lies in our Lord Jesus Christ alone. Our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom was given in the fullness of time, dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that moment at the cross when our minds cannot fathom it, but when you, the Heavenly Father, turned your back on your only begotten, most beloved Son, Jesus, as he became the sin-bearer for us who are fallen, crooked, and without hope. Thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you showed then and that you show today in the proclamation even to the present day of this glorious gospel of him who, though he knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Grant that each of us, young and old, may spend our days, the days remaining to us, thinking this through, pondering it, that you have taken vessels destined for wrath and transformed us, made us your own possession, your dear possession, because of Jesus Christ. And you've welcomed us into your very family, into your home. Grant that we would think on these things for our good and your glory. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.